and welcome to Fort Wayne Ballet's Kinetic Conversations. I'm Jim Sparrow. Today, we're happy to bring you part two of our conversation with Raymond Lukens of American Ballet Theater and Karen Gibbons-Brown, Fort Wayne Ballet Artistic Director. If you haven't heard part one yet, you can listen to that episode as well as any of our past podcasts on the Kinetic Conversations page on the Podbean Network or visit our website, fortwayneballet.org, to access past episodes. One of the major changes in terms of arts and how they're presented or seen as valuable, both in terms of the economic model, but also their point of being, used to be about presentation and quality. That was the thing that was driving the model. Now, so much more of it is about process, engagement and process with an individual. So it's less about sitting passively in an audience and seeing something of quality and more people would like and engage. Do you think that can have any benefit in terms of what you were describing related to the possibility of more people being involved in dance, that it was so limited in the past? Or is it just such a high quality type of process to generate that that's a hard thing to get over? Well, anything that requires a great deal of work, like becoming a dancer or becoming a musician or becoming a sportsman, it just, there's so much work involved and it requires also a natural ability. So it's very selective on its own for that. But those people who study these things, you know, they go, they do, everybody does sports. Everybody should learn to play an instrument. It's very good for them. Everybody should do any kind of physical activity. If the experience is positive, those people will love what they're seeing and they'll understand it better. I mean, if I speak French, I can read French poetry and enjoy it if I don't speak French. So if I don't understand it, I can't really appreciate it. The more you know, the more you appreciate. But people do want to see excellence. People do want to see a product that is really beautiful and magical and that touches them at a deep level. What's really interesting about ballet and in music too, I have to say, there's that moment, these moments where you just don't understand why. Why are you so moved by that? And it's almost like poetry in sound or in movement. And it's abstract. You sometimes don't even know why. And it's just expressing the human condition. And a little example, there's a, a ballet called Napoli. And I remember that they were teaching a girl She's getting married and she has to do an arabesque position with her leg in the back. And she places the arm and the head in one position because she says, yes, I'm getting married. And then she turns around and she does the arabesque and she puts the head in the other position. Oh my God, I'm getting married. So that is something that is part of being a human being. And the audience, even though they might not understand the narrative, but they feel it. It's really is visceral. It's really wonderful. We talk about dance and creating dancers or giving children a dance education, but there are so many other things that a student of dance gains and lifelong skills that carry them through life. I think that's something we can't forget. No. Usually when people study dance, they're making brain connections, neurological connections that are way more advanced, like studying music. Anything that requires a level of concentration, which is harder, but it has to be fun. We know that when people are having a good time doing it, the connections of the neurons happens way, way more. Think of it in terms of when you have a child and they memorize the entire script of the Disney movie <laughs> and they know every single word of every single character, every single song, but they have to learn a little poem in school and it's a tragedy. So actually <laughs> giving that sense of enjoyment while learning that is very beneficial. But ballet also has the sports activities. Your muscles are getting stronger. 
And so there's a whole range of benefits in it because ballet is so scientifically put together, it's actually a really perfect way of getting physical education. One thing about ballet is that when I was directing Boston Ballet 2, we had to justify why are we giving money or why are we investing in Boston Ballet 2. So I went back and did a little research to the history of Boston Ballet, and they had not really kept good archives. So it took me forever, lots of work. But we found out everybody who was in the company were ace students. They all went on to have other careers that were incredibly successful. And another story, which is really interesting, there was a school in Virginia called Virginia School of the Arts in Lynchburg, Virginia. Lynchburg, Virginia, the county, used to receive a lot of money for education because the academic level was so high. But then Virginia School of the Arts was closed down and the academic level of the county plummeted. So they lost the money on education because the school had actually raised the level of education in the area. So you know how they work out where the grants go, where the Funding, money goes. Yeah. Right. So ballet is actually a win-win situation. So we've been talking a bit, Raymond, about educating young bodies and training them to be dancers or good lifelong citizens with great skills for many things. We've learned so much about kinetics and the capability of a human body in the last 20 years. How has that affected how we train dancers? Well, it's informed us. So we know how to avoid issues. So you want to avoid a problem. You want to not create a problem. Because dancing is so selective and very few people can actually achieve a professional standard, for the people who are not gifted that way, it could actually be damaging if not done with care. But for the professional dancer, it's also a way to make their careers longer so they can have a healthy, happy, and longer career. It's incredible how much we have learned. I mean, I wish I had known, or I wish some of my teachers had known <laughs> some of the things that we know today. And, you know, th there was this thing uh, one time that you had to be really tough with students to make them work harder and have them have a thick skin. And we know that that's not true. That doesn't really work. It's better to have a positive approach. Not to lie, you have to tell the truth, because especially younger children, they love the truth. And I'm sure that you've had this as a director, but you might have a meeting with a parent and the child there, and the parent might fib a little bit, and the child will look up and say, but that's not true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My own children, too. <laughs> so that that is something that it's normal for the child. So you must never really lie to the child, but there's no point in putting down anybody. So we've known that that's an important aspect of training now. Right. And there is such a drive now to have extremes in dance, extreme turnout, extreme extension, extreme pirouettes, multiple turns. And then there's the school of thought that it's more about the artistry and not the pyrotechnics of the movement. Where do you sit on that? This is a tricky question because the extreme, extreme turnout, the 180 degree turnout, that has been part of ballet from day one. The turnout was established to give the ability to move in all directions easily. It actually comes from fencing. But lifting the legs very high or overstretching, that has become, I think, too much in the sense that you can damage the ligaments and the joints, and, and it's really, really dangerous. Uh, and I think it's aesthetically not as pleasing as a line that balances each other, like in sculpture or in art. Sometimes we forget that it is an art form. But 
depending on the ballet that you're doing, like Kevin McKenzie said, depending on the dress that you're going to wear, some ballets are very uh, animalistic or structured differently. Some ballets are very classical in nature, or so you have to consider where they are in history. And the closer we are to what it should be in that period in history, the better it is. The extremes, I'm not really that much for the extremes. I think there has to be a really good balance. And I think the most important thing is the artistry. You have to be able to connect with the audience on a intellectual level, on an emotional level, and you have to be able to connect in an aesthetic level. So there has to be the aesthetics, the emotion, and the intellect. So even the mathematics or the designs or the the actual brilliance of like Mozart's music, which is mathematically Mm. so perfect. I tell our dancers quite often, you have to share your heart with your audience. If you can't share your heart, then it is only an exercise. Exactly. I was very lucky. I worked with the Italian Olympic skating team. And so I would go to the Olympic City in Rome to coach them. And what I was trying to do is get them to have more relationship with each other. And that was really fun. They really loved it. And you could see that in skaters. You could see that coming out in skating. We were talking earlier today about a specific position in ballet, coup de pied versus retiré or passé, and the historical context of that. So back in Petipas time, 1880, 1890, things were done a little bit lower as opposed to the high legs and high positions. And we were talking a little bit about why. Would you mind sharing that? Well, there was an aesthetic. You didn't want to do extreme positions because it was considered acrobatic or vulgar. So that has changed in time. So legs started going up. And actually, the first people to start lifting legs were the can-can dancers in Paris. But that was for another reason. Right. <laughs> they were lifting their legs up. <laughs> the, the, they thought that that was not proper in ballet. So it was... Too burlesque. Yes, it was too burlesque. Costuming changed a significant amount too. Yet we hold to those tutus, those romantic longer tutus, the cl- shorter tutus, the classical... Now we often have unitards, which are, for anyone who's not familiar, very form-fitting. It's like a piece of lycra on your body. It's like a second skin. Exactly, a second skin. Do you think that's affected the range of motion? Oh, the costume, definitely. Actually, ballet changed dramatically with Isadora Duncan. Isadora Duncan was an American dancer. It seems that she was course, I'm not old enough to have seen her, but she was very charismatic, extremely beautiful woman. And she used to perform symphonic ballets. And when Mikhail Fokin from St. Petersburg saw her, he was overwhelmed by the freedom and the abandon that she had because the dancers always wore these tight corsets. So they didn't have the same kind of abandon through the waist. And so he started incorporating that. And I think that's become more part of ballet. It's really funny that it was this very interesting uh, lady, Isadora Duncan, that actually had a huge effect on how ballet developed. So moving a little bit forward after Petipod, Isadora Duncan, we move into the Ballet Russe. And you mentioned that you worked under Branislava Nijinska, yes. who was Vaslav Nijinsky's sister. And she was the first woman choreographer of a major ballet company. How was that working with her? Was she aware that she was groundbreaking in the time? Well, she was in an environment that was groundbreaking anyway. I mean, Diaghilev with Stravinsky and Matisse and Picasso and Coco Chanel, Basque and uh, and Chanel, Coco Chanel. Yeah, she did. Uh, um, um, what was the name of the ballet? Um, anyway, I'll I'll remember some. And uh, Nijinska did 
this ballet in 1924 called Les Biches. And Les Biches was a very risque ballet. It was a ballet about men going into a place where ladies offered their services. It was just a beautiful ballet. And it was very nuanced and very, very well done. So was her company mostly her works? Well, she worked for Diaghilev. She produced several ballets for him. Oh, Le Train Bleu. That was the one I was trying to think of before we, Coco Chanel did mm-hmm. this designs. And the front curtain of Train Bleu was done by Pablo Picasso. So uh, this is right. pretty groundbreaking, the whole the whole thing. And um, the Le Biche was with Poulenc, did the music, and Laurent Saint did the sets and costumes. And then in 1933, she founded a company, and that was truly groundbreaking in that a woman in France, basically anywhere, could not have a bank account without the name of her husband or father or a man had to be behind because a woman was not allowed to have a bank account. And she formed a ballet company. That ballet company in it was Anna Skarpova, who was... Igor Yuskevich's wife, whose best friend, they were always together, was uh, Frederick Franklin and Frederick Ashton. And the, I mean, there was all these incredible people working together. And the second tier choreographers of her little company was Massine and other choreographers that became well-known and Lifar. And, but then, of course, Lifar took over the Paris Opera. So Nijinska was an extraordinary, extraordinary lady. Very scary. <laughs> I only met her once towards the end of her life, and I found the same. She was a little frightening. <laughs> frightening. She and Massine, I was working with Mr. Massine in San Francisco, and the two of them had an argument in Russian, which none of us understood, but it was clear it wasn't a pleasant conversation. Well, you know, but I, I don't know if you've ever seen the Ballet Russe movie that Freddie Franklin mm, put oh together. Yeah. One of my favorites. And he says, these Russians are so nasty with each other. <laughs> and I, I think it's just the way they talk to each other. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I did have a question in terms of one of the comments that you made earlier, and you were talking about the sort of balance between the refinement and the extremes and and everyone working through one of the things you also mentioned about was sports. You know, everybody is involved in sports and there's something that's beneficial. But what I think is interesting, or maybe we can talk about, a lot of people go through that funnel of learning to play an organized sport or learning some type of game. And they go through the funnel and they may have aspirations to play professionally or to play in college. And the funnel kicks you out based on your aptitude and skill or size. But there's still a love for the sport on some level, entertainment, engagement. The American population, the world population, the world the, population, the population yeah. engages with athletics that way. I don't always see it that way. and Maybe I'm missing something. But with the fine arts, the funnel is the same. Many people get in for the applied side. And as they're kicked out, so to speak, or find there's a ceiling because of their skill level, whether a musician or whether they're a dancer, that love and appreciation doesn't appear to be quite as organic as it does in the athletic world. And maybe I'm missing something, but do you see that to be the case? And if yes. so? Uh, I think it's because what is required in the study of dance, even in uh, the most elementary level, there's so much detail in music too. There's so much detail. And the amount of detail involved, I think the number of people that do it becomes way less than sports. So you try to hit a ball with a baseball, but there isn't, what are you doing with your pinky finger? Or how do you transpose from one key to another when you're playing an instrument? The level of detail is just so much that you cannot have 
anywhere as many people doing it as people who do sports. Well, and I think the detail can become frustrating for some people, but also you mentioned earlier the safety, training safely. The detail is critical for safe training. Yes. The first time I encountered an attention to detail in the extreme was when I was doing acrobatics. Because the acrobatics teacher says, if you do not follow instructions exactly, you can break your skull. I mean, he would just say it. I think because of the danger of it in that sense, that people pay attention. But people think that dancing is easy because when it's done well, it should look easy. And it's the same as when you're a singer. You have these singers or dancers who do things with such natural ease. I mean, you look at Frank Sinatra singing And then you think, oh, I could sing that. And then you try and you go, oh, wow, that's not easy. So I've noticed a change in students that we're getting in this day and time. They don't do as much outside activity as they used to. They're cutting back on the arts and physical education in the schools with the budgets. So children come into us a little less naturally capable of moving. They don't always have the capability to move at home or in the school. So we spend an awful lot of time working on basic coordination. Do you find that to be worldwide or is It's that- worldwide. Okay. It's everywhere where there's technology. There's a lot of talent coming out of Brazil because they recruit talent in the very poor areas. Brazilians have had this thing, they go into the favelas, it's really very sad situation. But because these children don't have anything, all they do is play out in the streets. And and that actually develops their coordination. So you get incredibly coordinated people coming out of these situations. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, I was reading a study, was talking about cognitive development and readiness, school readiness. And it was specifically for American schools that have a very traditional European way of educating in terms of a traditional classroom environment and preparing that way. But the statistics were showing and the studies were showing that children who came from a less advantaged for that track, maybe more rural, a different socioeconomic situation, that the great equalizer was physical play Mm -hmm. because that's how three to six-year-olds learn how to use things. And as you talked about earlier, it's this, the neuron connections connections that, and specifically when they're allowed to play, but also have some structural element. And that includes athletics. There's a structural element. They catch up very quickly and go into school readiness regardless of other factors. And when that's missing, and the study was saying so much of it is missing today, that children go in deficient in many cases because that's the natural way that three to six-year-olds learn. Well, now we have the electronic babysitters. You don't want the children to bother you, so you turn on the TV or you give them an iPad or you give them something to play. So they're just sitting down and they don't actually experience movement and they don't experience interaction with others. So there's also a social skills become a little bit more difficult. There's something really interesting when we were doing the ABT curriculum, they were talking a great deal about stress fractures. So why are there so many dancers that are... And I went to our main doctor in New York and I said, I don't remember that. Did we have stress fractures? I don't remember knowing it. And he said, actually, they were very rare, your generation, because you guys were always playing. You were in the streets playing or in a park or doing, you were never still. And that actually creates bone density and muscular strength and coordination. So when children do not have impact activity, They don't develop bone density, and that's why you have a lot of stress fractures and things that happen, because it was not done early on. That's why in the program that we've incorporated a great deal of jumping in the early stages of training. 
Well, and it's fun. Going and it's up, fun. You <laughs> get the endorphins going. It's it's fun. I, I think that's one thing that we talk about that. Get your kid moving again because they're three to six and it's important. But so much of being a child and what you remember as a child about being fun is physically acting out your imagination. Now, it's great to color on a page and do everything, but the physically acting out your imagination and learning where your boundaries are and falling down and getting back up and learning how to organize. And that's a lot of what you know, you're know you talking about in terms of the dance curriculum at an early age is beginning to do some of that, but it's fun. Yeah. Well, a lot of dance training was more form-based. They would say we have to get them in the right positions, et cetera. And that became very, very popular in the 60s and 70s to try and get all the bodies to be perfect. And and then they were getting dancers who couldn't dance without being supported. So th sometimes they were very beautiful. And I can think of a few who were just exquisite, but they needed to be supported all the time. So it was this thinking of form all the time and not giving them the ability to achieve virtuosity in a way. And that when you think that you're going to do something because it's fun to do, you know, I'm going to do this trick this because it's fun. Most things that kids learn to do, they're doing it because it's not during class, it's because after class they start competing with each other and they see how many turns you could do and they start having fun with each other. And that moment, you actually are training your body also. Well, and most dancers often don't get early on that dancing is what you do from shape to shape. You have to be able to move through space to create those shapes, I think. You talk a lot about the bamboo theory, and I love that theory. I've used it a couple of times with parents in our program. Could you explain a little bit about that? How I came to know about it or yes. what it is? Well, I was examining a Chinese girl who was from the Beijing company, Chinese National Ballet, and she was an exceptional dancer, quite brilliant in her technical ability. And so when she did the program, she did the first two phases of the program, and she was just so beautiful and demonstrated everything so well that you go, wow. But I'm not quite sure whether she's understood the whole idea of working with normal people, not just very gifted people. And then we got to the final exam, and I was there with my colleague, D.D. Malsberger, and the girl started to cry. And I said, what's wrong? Do you need to sit down? We can do it later if you... She says, no, no, I'm fine. I just realized that this is like the bamboo theory. And so the bamboo is one of the most resistant plants in the world. It's very, very sturdy, but the bamboo sets its roots and it takes about three to four years and then it starts sprouting. And it is almost indestructible because once those roots are so solid, it grows very quickly and it's a very, very sturdy plant. So it's the same in training. If you give really solid foundation, but I think that's true in anything, then the person will have the resources to really flourish. I think that's lovely. The bamboo theory, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I know we're out of time, but again, it's been great to sit and chat for a little bit. And thank you both for being part of this conversation. Raymond, you're one of the most knowledgeable people I've ever met on dance history, curriculum, terminology, the world at large. I really have enjoyed this time with you. Thank you. Oh, um, thank you. Our guests today were Karen Gibbons-Brown, Artistic Director of Fort Wayne Ballet, and Raymond Lukens of ABT. Thank you both again for being here. I'm totally honored. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show, brought to you by Fort Wayne Ballet and with the support of University of St. Francis. Our guests today were Raymond Lukens and Karen Gibbons-Brown. Our co-producers for this series are John Dawkins, who incidentally also composed our theme music, and Marsha Hetrick. 
To learn more about the ballet or to locate any of our past podcasts, please visit us at fortwayneballet.org. Until next time, I'm Jim Sparrow, and thanks for listening to Kinetic Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet.